The Stage Door Show. Celebrating the independent artist. With your host, Dave Hondell. Hi everyone, welcome to The Stage Door Show tonight. This is Dave Hondell. I'm really looking forward to speaking to our guest tonight. He's an Emmy Award winning writer, producer, and historian. And I'm happy to have him on the show tonight, Mr. Daniel Blake Smith. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Hey, Dave. Thanks so much for having me on. Good to be here. Absolutely. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, you know, I, I know that you're an author of uh, several books and films and, uh, you know, and dramas and documentaries. And a lot of the work that you do is uh, based on, you know, true, uh, you know, incidents that have happened in American history. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to try to focus on tonight is is history, because as a history fan myself, I tend to think that the generation that's coming up now, the younger generation, unfortunately, um, is unaware of a lot of the historical events that have happened, you know, from my generation even and before. Uh, when I talk to some of the younger folks, including my own kids, <laughs> they're unaware of some of the things that have happened. And, and I think that it's disturbing for me. Because, uh, you know, we learned about history in school, uh, you know, civil rights history, you know, even the Revolutionary War and, and before, which I think kind of obviously shaped our country and shaped who we are. So I wanted to get your thoughts as a historian. What, what are your thoughts on, uh, do you see a decline in, in uh, you know, historical knowledge as, as, we, as we move along? I'm afraid I have to agree with you, and that comes from someone who also taught history. I taught at the University of Kentucky many years, taught American history, sure. and uh, did my best to uh, redirect that that kind of uh, historical ignorance. Sometimes succeeded, sometimes not. Uh, you know, we live in a culture, as you were pointing out, that's so present moment, even down to the last few seconds. You know, what's what's on my phone? What's what's uh, trending in Twitter? You know, so it probably. It's no surprise to people that historical, deep historical thought and knowing about the Civil War and um, knowing about, you know, what Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and, and their slaves felt and thought and how they lived is like miles away, some alternate universe kind of thing. Even though if they're going to make sense out of all the events that are happening today, you know, we, all these issues about uh, statues being taken down that celebrated the Confederacy. You, know, you have to understand where that came from. And um, if you don't, it must strike people as just kind of a, an odd, uh, you know, red state versus blue state kind of argument and, and not understanding that, you know, the statues, the Confederacy itself uh, started celebrating itself in the late 19th and early 20th century uh, after the Civil War, feeling they were being left out, that the uh, their glorious moment had been forgotten. But if you don't even know what any of that's about, then it's it makes you, uh, I think, uh, kind of emotionally stunted because you don't really know where you came from. Right. You know, whether it's American history or wherever you're American, you should know some of the things that happened in this in this in this country and why they happened. Not just what they happened. It's not like memorizing dates. I don't think that maybe that works mm -hmm. on Jeopardy or something. But yeah. you know, if you're really trying to go figure out who you are and the town you live in and the people you know and the race you're a part of and the race that you are confronting and whatever it is, you have to have some grasp of American culture and history. And I, I, I always find it distressing that, that it's an uphill battle to get people to think about that. 
Well, you did a piece of work uh, on the 1960 Greensboro, North Carolina lunch counter sit-in at Woolworths, and I found that interesting. I think, you know, again, that's one of the most important things that happened in our history that led to, uh, you know, a huge uh, civil rights movement. So, you know, talk about that piece of work and, and really how that came about and why you decided to, to do a piece on that. I had a history colleague of mine who was had moved into the world of public television as a developing development guy and was making films in Chapel Hill. And he had been on our faculty at, at Kentucky, and um, he knew I had a. I was really into storytelling in the broadest sense, but this is very early on when I was starting to do film, and um, he thought of, well, what if we did something on the the sit-ins in 1960? I thought, well, that would be great. Uh, do you have a way to get to them? And of course, he lived there in Raleigh-Durham area, and three of the four guys who sat in on the in 1960 at the Woolworths in in um, uh, Greensboro. Uh, still lived, and we got. I got to go interview them. I, I wrote it and helped him produce it. And by writing it, I mean, it's a documentary. You don't always write, but you compose the direction of it. You do the interviews, sure. and sort of frame the conversation. And I have to tell you, Dave, I have never had a more ennobling moment in my life than when I sat down with those guys independently and together. Sure. Because these guys at age, get this, 17 or 18, they're at uh, North Carolina A&M uh, in 1960. 18 years old, these were uh, hardened professional activists right. like we see today sure. uh, for pro or anti-abortion or women's rights or anti whatever it is. These were just young kids who just found it an affront that they could not sit down, literally could walk through Woolworths, but could not sit down at the lunch counter. And like one of them said to us, he said, I wasn't trying to start a revolution. I just wanted to eat. Uh, but they also knew what they were up against. Sure. And they, it was a very existential moment. And so when I've shown that film, which I'm deeply proud of, yeah. not because I did some great thing with it, but because I was just showcasing what I consider to be one of the most, one of the rarest traits you could ever possess, and that's courage. Right. Because if you have courage, then you can love. You have to have courage to do just about anything important. And these guys had it in space, just unbelievable. And that's why I loved, when I taught, I loved showing it to freshmen because I said, these are guys your age. Look what they did. And they didn't come with any advantage. They weren't, you know, uh, terribly rich kids or, you know, the, the sons of governors or something. They, right. they were just hardworking family, keep up hardworking middle-class families. Yeah. They didn't want to move up in the world, so they wanted to go to college. And they stood up for what they believed in. And they started a revolution. I yeah. mean, the civil rights movement got its student element going, its young person element going uh, with the uh, sit-ins. Now, and did, it's, uh, so I was, I'm, all, I'm, I'm proudest of that film yeah. just about more than anything I've ever done. You know, and Daniel, uh, speaking of that film, I mean, when you were when you were showing it, and obviously, it, you know, at the film festivals and wherever, and, and on TV, did you have some feedback? I mean, did people ask you questions? I, I, would, I would imagine a film like this would uh, would prompt a lot of uh, you know feedback and questions, and uh, you know about the the sit in and about what you learned. Uh, which is actually actually part of the the reason why you do something like this is to start conversations, right? And you know, did you see that a lot? I did. I got lots lots of unusual questions. <laughs> Believe it or not, there's it's also kind of the history of memory because I I have to tell you that several people from that area came and claimed, "Hey, I sat in on that day too." Wow! And it's just like <laughs> you know, people just kind of wish themselves into that moment. Maybe they came the third or fourth week of it or something. Sure. They were not. The first four, I mean, there's a photographic evidence of these guys walking sure. out. Sure, right, right, it's right. Not really up for debate. Yeah. And um, 
And people wondered, well, weren't they really motivated by these folks in Nashville who were much more professional uh, um, civil rights guys? Didn't the media get a hold of them? Said, no, no, I know that's that's not only a natural question to ask these days, it may be even the right question to ask. Like, who was your handler? Who got you involved in this? These guys had no handlers. Yeah. In fact, they were deeply upsetting their parents when they found out about this. They said, oh, my God, we sent you to, to, to college to get an education, not to start a freaking revolution. Yeah. And they just acted on, the, on their impulse. Right. They, they, it really grew out of a, a, a bull session in their dorm. They couldn't stand it anymore. Yeah. That was the extent. Uh, that was collaborating among themselves, not anybody else. Sure. Nobody believes how existential it was right. that, that they, on their own, no, they were getting financed by black churches, by the NAACP. Yeah, right. Uh, a lot of people, the white folks, thought this is a communist thing, and the Communist Party was sponsoring it. Yeah. Or they were just trying to show off in front of the cameras. It is true that this was the first city. The cities were one of the first civil rights uh, moments that was televised, and they didn't know that was happening. They just went and sat down and started dealing with the consequences of it. So to me, it's like a pristine moment of people making choices about yeah. what they thought was right, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, and what it led to is amazing. That's totally. Yeah, and then you know, Daniel, uh, I know that you did a couple uh, award-winning pieces on uh, Native American, uh, you know, uh, situations that have happened in the past, like the tra- uh, legacy, uh, Cherokee Legacy Trail of Tears and Black Indians in American History or American Story. Uh, pardon me. And then you know, the, both these were narrated by you know uh, James Earl Jones. Well, that way is part Cherokee. Yeah, okay. I did not know that. Um, and Wes Studi helped out in one of them. He did it in the, in the Cherokee language because he's a great film wow, star. Wow, wow. of the Mohicans and, and Heat and, mm-hmm. and Hostels and a bunch of other things. Was this born a lot of it out of your you're a teacher of uh, American history and, and at the university? I mean, was this something that, you know, some of these pieces that you really love to teach and, and uh, you know, young people about and, and you decided, hey, you know, this, is like, this would make a great documentary? Partly, and I'm also part Cherokee myself. Um, one eighth, sure. <laughs> but uh, uh, my great my grandfather was very visibly uh, Cherokee in part, and uh, uh, so that was. I'm not trying to pretend I was raised uh, a Native American. I was not. I grew up yeah. in North Texas. I was not sure raised in that fact. But I, I came to care a lot about that story, partly because I studied. You know, you study American history. You have to start with Native peoples, and and that and the Cherokee story always fascinated me. It's even gotten some recent prominence. I don't know that it'll ever happen, but I can tell one anecdote. A uh, famous, uh, recently famous actor, Alan Richardson, who played uh, Jack Reacher in a TV series that just came out on Amazon Prime. Yeah, yeah, right, right. That was a huge, huge hit, you know, mm-hmm. and now he's a huge hit. He called me up about two months before that series began. And uh, I thought, Alan Richardson, I know that name from something. He said, well, I'm going to be I'm going to be playing uh, uh, Jack Reacher. I said, oh, that's great. Not knowing how good the series was going to be. Right, right. Anyway, he said, I got your book, American Betrayal, Cherokee Patriots and Trail of Tears, and I love it. And I want to use it. I want to base a limited series on the Trail of Tears. I want to use your book as the basis for it. I thought, wow, that's great. I hope you've got the. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say this, but I, I hope you have the juice in Hollywood yeah. to somehow make this happen. But let's see. He said, well, it depends on how this works out when it comes out in, I think it was February. Right. We were talking in October. Boy, did it, it blow up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's so big now that I don't know if it will happen because he's too big to get to it. Yeah. But um, anyway, I, I think that would be a uh, yeah. subject worth exploring dramatically. There For is. sure. And I did one of the documentaries on it, but I think there'd be a, an important way to remind people 
of, you know, this was our own kind of American Holocaust in a way, yeah. minus the deliberate decision that we're trying to kill Indians. Yeah. So I wouldn't call it ethnic cleansing or like the Holocaust in that sense, but it was, it, it was an inadvertent ethnic cleansing because they just moved them out. And if they died, so what? Yeah. And of course, a third of them did die. Right. Right. So, uh, yes, it is a subject dear to my heart. And, uh, uh, it was great to have the cooperation of the Cherokee Nation in the making of that documentary. hundred percent, yeah. You know, you know, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, and this, this caught my eye as well, is, is impact after the crash uh, about the uh, Carrollton, uh, Kentucky, 1988 major uh, crash. Uh, you know that that actually was. Um, uh, you know, was drunk driving was involved, and you know, is this something? The reason and this caught my eye is because, you know, we're all on the highway, we're all on the roads every single day. And we never know when that one thing could impact our lives, you know, whether it's ourselves or whether it's a family member. You know, I have two children that are on the road every day as well, and they're not even, they're not close to me. So I always worry about what's going on with them. And because it's never always about the way you drive, it's about somebody else and their decision yeah. uh, to drive under, you know, and being impaired. So, you know, talk about that project because that, that really caught my attention. And that was, uh, yeah, it was, yeah. A, it was the uh, deadliest drunk driving crash in American history. Yeah, right. Uh, 26 kids, actually, with two, three adults and 23, I'm sorry, 26 kids and three other adults killed on this one bus coming back from Kings Island yeah. uh, in uh, Ohio back to uh, Carrollton, Kentucky. Right. On I 71, I believe it is. And, uh, you know, at first I thought, why do I want to do this? It's so morbid. But I found it really. If you see the film, it's spiritually very enriching because a lot of the people, ever ever a church group on, yeah, on the bus right, for one right, thing. Right. And uh, there's so many poignant stories there about people who became close because they found each other and they had lost their own children. Right. And so they became close in that sense. Um, uh, it's a really binding, bonding story about um, uh, how do you deal with loss. And most people dealt with it in a really... I guess you have to say healing way. Yeah. It was very easy to be just simply angry and become a alcoholic or whatever. A lot of bad things happen right. when people lose somebody, lose so many. Right. But um, I found it uh, immensely uplifting to be with that community that suffered the grief that they did. Uh, the one thing we tried to get was an interview with the guy who was driving the wrong way on the sure, interstate drug. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. And he, he, been, he just got out of prison by the time we made the film. Yeah. And we thought, well, maybe he'll feel okay, but he, he couldn't deal with it. He would, he, at first he said, yeah, come by. And then he just freaked out at the door and wouldn't talk to us. Okay. Uh, it's just, you know, not that it's kind of a gotcha thing. I mean, it's okay that we didn't have it because the yeah. real story is the family just suffering and what happened. There's yeah. also some side issues that are important about the, the, the placement of gasoline tanks on buses back then, which yeah. are right up there by the drivers, the front part of the, of the, of the uh, okay. cab. And so it's easy for it to catch fire. Sure. Um, but it was uh, so many great stories of people um, rising from the ashes kind of thing to yeah. make their lives even better. There's a few stories where people uh, just struggle to this day with it, but most of them found a way out of it. And I, I found that I mean, I love, I'm always drawn to stories of, of courage. And, right. uh, and I think out of that came a lot of elements of courage. You know, I, you know the men, the many award-winning uh, films and documentaries that you did. Texas Heart being one of them as well. Uh, you know, I, I guess when did you get the the passion for for writing? You know, not not just you know your books, but also for for the screen. You know, where did that passion come from? 
well, <laughs> without realizing it, my Ozark grandfather, who had such a captivating and and sometimes crazy way of telling stories and, and making me think about the power of storytelling, I could spin a yarn the way he could. Sure. But I got into history, really, because I thought, I love the stories that they tell. Now, it just so happened that a lot of times professional historians get caught up in deep analysis and facts and figures, which are fine, but they don't exactly uh, sell outside of academia, if you know sure, what I mean. Right, right. So I, and that's one of the reasons I, I left academia when I did. Uh, I just decided I, I want to do things a different way. I want to tell stories for film and television. Started out in the theater, I wrote plays. I wanted to have a, a broader focus or platform to to talk about things that matter, right. whether they were historically based or not. And at first, a lot of my projects were uh, historically based, but I moved into both because of the costs of recreating, doing historical dramas on, on right, film, right. Mm -hmm. and also because I just think, okay, you can tell important truths in the world that aren't rooted in history as well as true stories, even though... I'm a firm believer in the old dictum that um, some of the best stories you don't have to make up. Right. That's true. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and Daniel, the, the other thing I wanted to kind of uh, talk to you about is, is uh, you know, the writing. You said that you wrote for theater and also, you know, wrote for the screen and wrote for novels. I mean, obviously there's a difference between all of those. And uh, do, do you find your process to be different when you write for, like write a, let's say write a play or, uh, you know, and then writing a book. And so how, how does that process differ in your mind? I mean, is, you have to have a certain mindset before you get into one of the, each of those disciplines, I guess. Well, it is true that even though I try to write narrative-based books, um, you do have to think about that as a very long-term project. I mean, I could write a script in three months. It takes a couple of years yeah. or more to write a book. At least a history book, not a novel. It's write a novel in maybe six months or something. Sure. But you have to think about it as a topic that you're going to explore and learn a lot about and find a way to tell it so that it won't feel like it's forever for people to get through it. Yeah. Uh, and that, that calls for a lot of discipline. I mean, I, when I did the Trail of Tears book, American Betrayal, I just, you know, rule number one, butt in chair at 9 a.m. or before every day and worked on that X number of pages a day. And that's after I've done all the research, which took quite a bit of time. Right. Um, uh, novels are different. Novels a little bit like a screenplay. Uh, in fact, one of them I'm turning into. I've turned into a screenplay. The one called Crazy Love mm -hmm. uh, is now we're working to get it set up as a film. But it it came to me like like a film would. In a, about that, I mean a series of scenes and going from one per one voice to another. One chapter's narrated by one character, the next by another goes kind of back and forth between three or four different people. And that's a little unusual in, in novels, although it happens. It never happens in film and uh, history books, of course. Yeah. Uh, but it's a way of kind of using different points of view to get people in, immersed in a story and maybe surprise them. Like, well, wait a minute. Now, I didn't realize he thought something very different from she did, from what she did, and this is making me rethink the whole thing. Um, I like the liberation of that kind of, thinking which happens in the world of novel writing and certainly in the world of film where yeah. you know as long as it the visuals and the storyline come together you have the ability to tell it in a real postmodern way you don't have to there's no footnotes and all the rest yeah, yeah. The, the, the history writing requires because everybody wants to know where did you get that how can you prove that that's true yeah and what you're doing in writing films and novels 
is not looking at historical truth. You're looking for emotional truth. Right. Like, what is the truth of this character? What is the truth of the story that's being played out? You could even use an unreliable narrator, somebody who, who after a while, you think, wait a minute, this guy's kind of making this up. I don't, I don't believe what he's saying. Yeah, right. Uh, you would never do that in a history book, of course. Yeah. Uh, you want to be able to say authoritatively, okay, in the 1960, uh, you know, Woolworth sit-in, the following factors were at play, and you tell it in a real straightforward way. But in the but you still have characters that you want people to get to know because those characters the way we used kind of characters in the in the film we did was to give color and feeling to how these people came to the decisions that they made it wasn't just some obvious lockstep thing mm-hmm. uh, that's the other problem I always found in history as much as I love it the way it's taught all the suspense and urgencies stripped out of it it's like learn these three things that happened in the American Revolution but wait a minute. Why? Why did the revolution even happen? Why? Right. Well, how weren't people afraid of that? There's no why. Where's the, where's yeah. the why? Yeah. <laughs> where's the why? Where's the yeah. where's the fear? Where's the emotion? Here? Right. Because mm-hmm. believe me, they had it there. Oh we sure. Just, we just think of it like, well, of course we had to leave those terrible British people and their authoritarian government. No, uh, John Adams himself said it. A third of the American population in 1776 was pro-British. A third was for the revolution, and a third couldn't decide. Yeah. And uh, trying to recapture that history is really important. You know, and I think uh, what you reminded me of something when you were talking about the Revolutionary War. Now, my wife and I uh, lived uh, for 10 years. I'm in Miami now, but we we have a house in South Jersey, which is near Philadelphia. And the town next to us is Mount Holly, New Jersey, which is historically significant to the Revolutionary War, which led to the Battle of Trenton. And unfortunately... (laughs) The skirmish that happened there that eventually led to the Battle of Trenton, uh, it's, it's barely even a plaque, right, on on the fence that where this happened. And it's all built up, and, and it's, it's, a sad, it's sad to, to drive past uh, something that was so significant uh, and part of the Revolutionary War, and it's, it's barely even a plaque. And it's not celebrated. There's nothing... I don't know. It that that's when I, we were talking a little bit before we started recording, and and it's a it's a frustration to see that some of our historically significant events and that happened in our world are are, are barely even a plaque on you know on a fence post. Um, so I, I guess you know that's the other thing that that I think hopefully we can you know with with the help of people like yourself and creating these great documentaries maybe we can have a new generation of historians that'll come out of this and and it'll motivate them or maybe inspire them i guess to be historians themselves so that's that's my hope i hope i hope you're right i know that the new generation of historians i, I was kind of a pioneer and a renegade in terms of uh, historian professional historian who got into film i remember i even had to have kid burns write a letter uh, recommending me to get promoted oh, <laughs> because wow. my colleagues couldn't understand how how and what how is this possibly history sure you know it's just it's just somebody you know putting on a on a, a mm-hmm. film doing a film yeah uh, that's not history but of course it can be and is oh sure uh, is but more and more historians are interested in telling broader stories that average people mm-hmm. can relate to not everybody but people writing textbooks aren't of course but you know people thinking about an issue that they feel like has real resonance today try to write for that broader audience or at least they're more attuned to it now by far than when i was there which is just you know great yeah. white political figures and and why they were tremendous and who's who's got the most footnotes and 
all the rest that I found to be kind of silly. Yeah. Uh, but it's not that way anymore. The question, though, that we started with is still still a troubling one, which is how do you attract young people to think history is not long ago and far away? Yeah. You know, like uh, it's what's, what's the phrase? Um, uh, William Faulkner said, "History's uh, not 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 dead. It's not even over." Right. It's not, uh, it's every day is history. We're making history right now, right? right, right. <laughs> you and, think uh, about it. If, if, if you get people to think that it's not long going far away, it's right underfoot. Yeah. Yeah. It's right underfoot. Right where that plaque is. It's too bad it's reduced to this, you know. Yeah. Uh, you drive a scenic mar- marker there or something off the road, but underfoot, mm-hmm. you could recapture that really bruising, disturbing, yeah. emotionally fraught, fearful, and exciting things were happening. Right. But now it's just yeah. blazing on a little plaque, yeah. and it seems like exactly. it's Janamber. Who cares? You know? <laughs> and maybe nobody looks at it when they go by. No. That's yeah. Terrible. So, uh, you know, the other thing, Daniel, is when you write a drama, let's say, you know, I, I, I another thing that caught my eye was Memory Box, because it's it, something like that is really kind of uh, close to home for me. But, um, you know, when, when you write a drama, let's say, is, is it is something that maybe – was a part of your life at one point, or is that something that maybe inspired the story? Um, uh, when yeah, you, when actually, you write- that uh, that grew out of a, another. The other, I only written two novels. The other novel, novel was called Mister Wonderful, and it's that's a phrase that my stepmother used to describe my father uh, in sort of a overly glorious way. Sure, he was a wonderful guy, but he wasn't Mister Wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, yeah. he um, he suffered from dementia. Okay, I'm not sure I'd go so far as to say it was Alzheimer's, but he had a pretty bad case of dementia late in life. And, it, you know, when you watch people become the shell of the person they are, it's really rough. On, yeah. uh, as they say, it's rough on the caregiver more than anything else. Right. And Memory Box is a short idea that I, I'm really proud of, too, because it it switches the point of view around at the end. And you don't and you're, you're forced to rethink, wait a minute, who's who's um, confusion Who's confused in this story? The young per the younger person or the old man? Right. And it, it makes you think about that. Um, you have to see it to, to get what I'm yeah, talking about. Yeah. It'll change your perspective, twist it toward the end of the film. Uh, but it all came from uh, my father's experience and my experience yeah. watching him and you know, trying to talk yeah. to him and be with him in, in the days toward the end of his life and yeah. um, realizing that that's a fate that a lot of us may face. And we got no cure for it, you know. Yeah, yeah. My, my my both my grandparents uh, suffered from that, and, and also my one of my uncles right now. So oh, wow. so very like I said, close to home. I can't wait to watch that that piece. Um, the other thing I wanted to uh, get into is 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 maybe some advice that you might have for some of our younger listeners that might be looking to get into being either a playwright or a screenwriter or a novelist. Even uh, you know what kind of advice would you give somebody just starting out uh, to keep them maybe inspired to keep going because some people some people like to give up and they don't, and we don't want them to give up so what kind of advice can you give them well you, you really you really shouldn't give up unless you unless you find this to be painful and not not doesn't have to be joyful but it needs to be invigorating it needs to be tap your soul like you know everybody myself included starts off writing pretty poor stuff but that doesn't matter I remember I've said you know uh, research center in, in Chicago or somebody work, somebody working on my history book instead I wanted to write about things that were going on in my family that I turned it into a play a play that was terrible but it it um, and I don't know, we never even produced it I think we had it 
reading or something, and that was enough for me. This is not well written. It's overwritten. But it got me so inspired to say, I want to find out how these people think on their feet, um, create characters, make them go through conflict. And that, that was exciting for me. For other people, it's just getting something off their chest. I guess the best, I don't think I'd say that the cliche of write what you know, the only part of that that's true is write what you know in your heart matters to you. Yeah. But just in terms of, you know, like if you wanted to start writing a play, you would not have to say, I've got to write about a podcast. It doesn't have to be. Right. <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, maybe people you know, learning from people, knowing how to listen, know how to tease out things from other people. Maybe that would be something that would be a, a, a starting point. But sure. the most important thing is write what you care about. Uh, and always, and I haven't always followed that. Most of the time I have, but when I haven't followed it, it's usually been kind of prosaic and not very interesting what I wrote. But if it's something you really care about, uh, follow your nose and your heart about that because that will help you, number one, keep writing. And number two, hopefully write something that matters because if you really, if you really, if you really care about something, your heart and soul will show up on the page. And so and it'll show up in the, in the way it's performed or if it's a novel, the way uh, readers pick it up. Uh, you know, the emotional truths of your life uh, are what you should constantly be thinking about, whatever they are. And that usually is, I have to admit, people writing about what they know. Right. They grew up on the streets, they're going to write about life on the streets. But it's not just that, it's, okay, what, what happened in those life in that life on the streets? You know, right. that, that gripped you, that made you who you are, that you just can't shake, keeps you up at night, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's good. I, I appreciate that. Uh, and I know our listeners do as well. Uh, you know, Daniel, what what are you I, I know you mentioned earlier, you're working on some projects. So what can we, we be excited about that's going to be coming out uh, that we can keep an eye out for? Well, I wrote a sort of a high concept thriller called Bloodborne about a young man that down on his luck has PTSD and finds out one day by going to the blood bank all the time just to make money that lo and behold, his blood cures cancer. Oh. And you think, oh, that's a great story. That's uplifting. No, that's the beginning of the end for him. Oh, okay. Big Farmer comes after him, hammer and tong. He's on the run. It's kind of the fugitive meets limitless, I guess. Yeah. And uh, his sister has cancer, and he is he's in a, a cat and mouse game with Big Farmer to uh, – because if it's if true, his blood would invalidate $6 billion worth of anti-cancer drugs they've got on the market. Yeah. So it's um I don't mean it's a big policy thing it really isn't but that's that's partly what it's about is you know what do you do and especially people came up thought of he's a he's a savior he's like Jesus or something look at this guy and he just wanted to help people out especially his sister and yeah. everybody's thinking oh you you're gonna have to monetize this in the biggest way and he's not averse to that but then he he's got this big struggle with it you're like well should I even be paying attention to that. Well, hell yes, I should. I might be money. Yeah. But on the other hand, I get in the world, I get caught up in the world of these people who are obviously craving after my money and are maybe going to take my life if I don't do what they want to do. So it kind of raises the stakes in an interesting way about ethical question. Yeah. Anyway, we're trying to get that set up right now. And I, I have a, a horror film, actually, that I wrote called with, with a, a young man here in, in St. Louis, too, called uh, A Beating Heart, that Sybil Shepherd is... Uh, starring in, and uh, we're going to try to get Xander Berkeley from The Walking Dead to join her. Uh, we're shooting that in Mississippi, 
speaking of true stories, I shouldn't say too much about this, but I don't want to tell any details about it, but just recently got contacted by some people who are putting together an enormous, like $400 million film fund. And they've selected me to write uh, uh, research and write and help produce feature film scripts and documentaries and limited series on strictly nonfiction stories wow. that, they're, that they've created. That's fantastic. And it's like, it's like, wow. Yeah. So um, I'm doing, I'm doing one about a manhunt in Canada. Uh, that is really cool. Uh, Cause one of the people behind this project is from British Columbia. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, that's going to occupy some of my time. I guess so. <laughs> in a I mean, good way. In a nice way. <laughs> in a good way, right? It's always good yeah, to be good to totally, be busy. Yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic, Daniel. Uh, you know, I I just I can't thank you enough for being on the show. And I, I always have uh, this one question that I ask everybody that's on my show, and and uh, it's uh, what do you want your legacy to be when it's all said and done? What do you want people to think about Daniel Blake Smith? <laughs> My wife always says that on my epitaph, it'll say, here lies Dan Smith. He had questions because I'm always questioning people. And I got it. I used it in documentaries because I was constantly interviewing people. But I guess in a broader sense, I'd like to think that all the years I've spent writing various things, I have uh, I've said some things. I've done some storytelling that has impact and meaning. Maybe makes people, provokes them to think a little bit. Hopefully is moving, uh, compelling, sticks with them a little bit. Um that would be great to know. Uh, I know it was important to me, but you know, I, I want to know that other people got something out of it. And I'd like to think maybe some of it, some of it did can't come off that way. That certainly was inspiring to me. Well, you definitely have a fan in me. Uh, I can't wait to, to dig into a lot of this this works of yours. And, uh, you know, DanielBlakesmith.com for all of our listeners. Make sure you check out his website. Uh, this is really well done. I love your website, Daniel, and uh, can't wait to, uh, again, share it on my social media as well. And uh, best of luck uh, to all the projects that you have coming up. They're all, they all sound very exciting. And I can't thank you enough for being. It's really an honor to have you on my show, Daniel. So thank you for taking the time. I'm I'm thrilled to see you reaching out to independent artists because, uh, you know, in the film world, we always say independent film world, story is king. And you're really reaching out to storytellers, whether it's uh, singer songwriters, you know, other musicians, filmmakers. It's great. So thank you so much for letting me be a part of it.